For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. We, brothers and sisters, are back in Revelation 11 this evening, and we're considering this depiction, this picture of the church given to the Apostle John in this interlude, this literary parenthesis that lies between the blast of the sixth and the seventh trumpets. We are, as we consider this text together, we're on safe ground to say, I think, when we come to the book of Revelation in particular, we're on safe ground to say that the Bible frequently uses symbols when the Bible is communicated through symbolism, right? It seems like a a self-explanatory statement, right? When the Bible is going to communicate through symbolism, the Bible uses symbols. I think we're on safe ground to say that. Uh, Symbolism is a common method of communication, certainly in the Bible, but in particular, symbolism is a particularly common method of communication in the book of Revelation. Examples throughout the Bible and examples in the book of Revelation absolutely abound. We see examples all over the Bible of where God uses symbolism to communicate spiritual realities or spiritual truths to his people. And what is comforting to those seeking to understand God's word when we come to texts like this is that we don't have to speculate, we don't have to go too far afield to understand the meaning of those symbols. Often the Bible tells us exactly what those symbols mean. We don't have to look at scorpions and wonder about Black Hawk helicopters. We don't have to do that. We don't have to enter into flights of fancy to figure out what scripture is speaking of. The Bible itself guides our understanding of that symbol. The Bible itself guides our understanding of what those symbols refer to, what they signify. For example, let me give you some examples, okay? When we encounter... Texts like Revelation 11 that are full of symbols, the Bible, what we would call the analogy of faith, should guide our understanding of what those symbols mean. They should help us to understand what is being communicated. How else would we be expected to understand references to olive trees and lampstands, for example? Two symbols used in our text. Well, how are we to understand what those olive trees signify? How are we to understand what lampstands here signify? Well, we go back to the Bible and we see how the Bible refers to olive trees and lampstands. And we have some pretty clear examples of olive trees and lampstands in scriptures to tell us exactly what they refer to. Olive trees, a way of referring to the people of God uh, in dwelt by the Spirit of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, lampstands referring to the churches, even lights atop the lampstands referring to God's people, shining as lights in dark places, right? A shining in the firmament as those who win many souls. We see references throughout Scripture to those symbols, and so we don't have to wonder, we don't have to speculate about what those symbols are communicating. When we see prophets here breathing fire, when we see a beast making war, when we see Jerusalem described as Sodom and Egypt, we don't have to go too far afield to understand what's being communicated through the use of those symbols. In that context then, in that context, if you think with me, just about Revelation 11, for example, in that context then, you can see how, how frankly, how foolish it would be for us then to come to this text and to say, the temple then has to be literal. 
or the 1,260 days. It has to be literal. When the text itself is filled with so many symbols, and when we can derive an understanding of what those symbols mean from the text of Scripture, when we come to Revelation 11, we know exactly what these references are referring to. We, we know exactly what these symbols are communicating. We don't have to speculate. These things, as the Bible says, these things are symbolic. And the use of that rich symbolism, if you think about it with me, the use of that rich symbolism communicates to us so much more than a simple reference to the thing signified. Right By the use of the symbol, there's so much understanding that is brought to bear upon the thing signified that we don't get by merely using the word. For example, when Paul in the New Testament, or when Peter in the New Testament refer to the church as the temple of the living God, rather than just referring to the church as the church, by referring to the church as the temple of the living God, there is a, a, an entire... Uh, uh, there are volumes of theology that is communicated through the use of that symbol. When Peter refers to you and I as living stones being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood offering up spiritual sacrifices of praise acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. When Peter describes us that way, right, that communicates this entire compendium of Old Testament theology that is included in that symbol. Right? It brings forward all of those pictures, all of that meaning, all of that significance. And it might be missed. All of that significance might be missed if you simply use the word church. Right? So the reason for using these symbols, these rich symbols. Now that's also true. That reality of understanding scripture is also true when you come to the book of Revelation. Revelation is the capstone of the canon. And Revelation as the capstone of the canon communicates this rich theological heritage that began in the garden, that began at creation, that is now coming, it's being shown to come to its consummated end at the end of the age and at the return of Jesus Christ. And as the, the capstone of the canon, it's bringing forward into Revelation a rich theological heritage that is encompassing the entire Bible and the best way to do that is, is through the use of symbols, through the use of Old Testament types and shadows, New Testament types and shadows, right? Rich symbolism. So when, for example, when the temple in Revelation 11 is the primary focus of this chapter at the outset of the chapter, and when John is given a measuring rod and told to measure the temple, in the context of the New Tes Testament, we know exactly what that symbol is referring to. In other words, what we're not to do is we're not to hear John speak of the temple and then think to ourselves, we're going to go back to that Old Testament brick and mortar building. Why? Because we've been told in the New Testament in a new covenant, from a new covenant perspective through the lens of the cross, we've been told how we are to understand that reference to temple, how we're to understand that and that symbol of the temple for the people of God indwelt by the spirit of God, a dwelling place of God by the spirit. We have a rich heritage, a rich understanding, a rich theological understanding of what that symbol communicates to us. So we're not to think about brick and mortar buildings. We're to think about what is this symbol communicating? What is being communicated by the use of this term? When we see the people of God then in the opening verses of Revelation 11, marked off by God as his own, those people of God worshiping in the naos, in the most 
holy place in the very presence of God with the courts outside the most holy place being trampled by the nations, being trampled by outsiders, the people of God surrounded by those who are trampling the holy city underfoot, trampling where they should be worshiping, we know exactly what's being communicated, don't we? We can draw conclusions from the use of that rich symbolism to know what's being communicated to us. And it's in this context then that God empowers his people, those who worship in the naos, those who are in the most holy place. God empowers his two witnesses. And those two witnesses then go forth in the spirit and in the power of God's Old Testament witnesses. So when you see prophets, for example, in the opening verses of this chapter, breathing fire and preventing rain and doing what Old Testament prophets have done, doing what Moses did, doing what Elijah has done, doing what Elisha has done, doing what Jeremiah has done, right? We see this as a reference to Old Testament prophets. We know that what's being happened, what's happening is that God is commissioning his people to go forth in the power and in the spirit of those Old Testament prophets and the proclamation of his own word, right? We know what's being communicated, bearing their testimony, just like those Old Testament prophets, bearing their testimony in hostile territory until their witness is completed in the power of the spirit with God um, empowering them, with God going before them, with God supplying his word. Like John, for example, commissioned as the, Lord eschatol- the Lord's eschatological prophet in Revelation chapter 10. These witnesses in Revelation 11 now, commissioned as God's eschatological witnesses for Jesus Christ during the time of the end. They go forth like Old Testament prophets. They are the two olive trees, those Zechariah-styled sons of oil. They are the two lampstands standing before the God of all the earth. Lampstands are reference to the church. Lampstands are reference to God's people. In other words, on the testimony of these two witnesses, God is establishing this matter on the earth of Jesus as the Christ. He's establishing that through his two witnesses. There is salvation in no other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that is the message on the lips of these witnesses. Why are there two? Because God is establishing everything according to the law by the mouth of two or three witnesses. But now, so we consider all of that rich symbolism that opened the chapter, and now we arrive at part one last week in our study of verses seven through 10. And in verses seven through 10 now, we're brought to the very end of the age. We're we're pressed against the end of the age, so to speak, the very end of this particular cycle that, that comprises that time between the first and second comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with this parenthesis, we are brought to the very end of the age, pressed against, if you will, the blast of the seventh and final trumpet, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, when their witness when the witness of the church is brought to an end at the hands of the beast uh, through their death, right? The witnesses are killed, their witness brought to, to an end through the hands of this ascendant beast. Verse seven opens, when they finish their testimony. So you can see what's happening right now during this age, the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, the church is to go out in the spirit and in the power of Elijah, so to speak, and preach the gospel. We're to be witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that gospel will be preached until the fullness of God's people have come in, right? Amen? But this points us forward, if you will, in time to when their testimony comes to an end. It presses us against the end of this age 
at the sounding of the seventh trumpet when Jesus Christ returns and their testimony comes to a conclusion. And it comes to a conclusion through their own death. Now that persecution, their death is typological. The prophets of God were killed, were they not? The prophets, the apostles were killed, martyred for their faith. Saints throughout history have been martyred for their faith. Saints throughout history have been killed for their testimony. Their persecution and death is typological. In other words, it follows the pattern. Brothers and sisters, the same is true of us. We've enjoyed peace and harmony in the United States preaching the gospel. We haven't faced the the same kind of persecution that our brothers and sisters have faced elsewhere, but they have faced it. There have been many. There have been those who have, have calculated that there are more people dying in the world today for their testimony of Jesus Christ than have in any point in history before now. So people are martyred for their faith. It is part of the pattern. It is typological. God's people are God's martyroi, his martyrs, his witnesses. And we've got to be prepared to witness for Jesus Christ, even to our deaths, if that's what it takes. But their persecution, the persecution and death of these two witnesses in Revelation 11 is typological of the church's experience throughout this age. And that typological experience of the church throughout this age of tribulation climaxes at the end. There will come a point uh, pressed against the end of the age, pressed against that, that time period at which Jesus Christ will return when the witness of the church will come to a conclusion, will come to an end. The witness of the church will have reached its conclusion and Jesus Christ will return to judge those who dwell upon the earth and to usher in his saints into glory. There will come a point in time when on earth our testimony of Jesus Christ to the lost will come to a conclusion. Okay? And this is pressing us against that particular climax at the end of the age. The Lord said in Matthew 24, verse 14, in his discourse there on the Mount of Olives with his disciples, that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. That's what Jesus Christ said. And this um, segment here, verses 7 to 10 in Revelation 11, is picturing that end. Now, having considered their conflict with the beast in verse 7 last week, We see the eventual result of that conflict now in verses 8 through 10. Last week, the the beast made war with them. The beast overcame them and the beast killed them. Now we see the result of that conflict beginning in verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. Notice the repetition, right? (laughs) Their dead bodies, their dead bodies, their dead bodies. Uh, The world is going to gloat over their dead bodies. The world is going to rejoice over their, their dead bodies. In fact, verse 10, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them Make merry and send gifts to one another (laughs) because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. It's going to be Dead Witnesses Day. And on Dead Witnesses Day, we give gifts to one another. (laughs) uh, The people who dwell on the earth. And those who dwell on the earth is a a way of describing uh, the lost 
wicked, unrighteous, unbelieving people who dwell on the earth in distinction from God's people who are his witnesses. Right? We see these people who dwell on the earth gloating over the death of these two witnesses. Now, in that gloating, verses 8 to 10, they think they've won a great victory, don't they? They think they've won a great victory. The enemies of God are seen to be gloating over the death of these witnesses, gloating over the end of their testimony, gloating over the fact that they never have to hear another word out of their mouths. Thank heavens that we don't have to hear another word about this Jesus, right? Gloating over the fact that their testimony has come to an end. They believe, they believe that they have finally silenced their voice in this world. That's interesting, and, and there, the, the number of parallels here is very interesting, but that's interesting, an interesting parallel to the experience of our Lord in his own persecution, suffering, and death on the cross. The forces of darkness, the enemies arrayed against him, believed that they had won a great victory. And then what happened? <laughs> he was raised from the dead, right? They believed that they won a great victory. They believed that they silenced his voice. They thought that all Jerusalem, that all the world would be turned over to Jesus Christ, but they killed him and they thought they put his ministry to an end. And then what they believed to be their own victory proved to be an, a glorious defeat. <laughs> their defeat. Now notice first with me, notice first in considering this, Notice first the contempt and the indignity that they show God's witnesses. They leave their bodies lying in the street. <laughs> Goliath, the Philistine, threatened to leave David's body lying in the field of battle for the birds and the beasts to feed on it. Right? When David, uh, David taunted, or Goliath taunted David, right? I'm gonna leave your body on the field and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field are gonna on, feed on your dead body. It was a tremendous insult, a tremendous insult. Jehu said that he would leave Jezebel on the ground at Jezreel for the dogs to eat her. Tremendous insult. And that was a, in fulfillment of prophecy. God himself said that that would be the case. And the dogs spread her refuse in the field. Uh, that's what will become of Jezebel's uh, at the end, right? Uh, this is what you do to your enemies. This is what you do to your enemies. The psalmist has something to say about this. We see this in Psalm 79, and there are several parallels here in Revelation 11 to Psalm 79. Listen to Psalm 79, verse one. Oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. Your holy temple they have defiled. They have laid Jerusalem in heaps. What does that sound like? That sounds like the opening verses of Revelation 11 and the Gentiles trampling the holy city underfoot. Right? The Gentiles, the nations, have come into the very courts and they're trampling the courts underfoot. Verse two, the dead bodies of your servants they have given as food for the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth. They've left their dead bodies in the street. Their blood, they have shed like water all around Jerusalem and there was no one to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to those who are around us. They're being taunted, do you see? The wicked gloating over them. The place where their bodies lie, the place where they were killed is described in Revelation 11 as the great city, the great city. Now, the immediate reference of that term, the great city, 
applies to Jerusalem. We know that's where our Lord was crucified. So the scripture makes reference to that. John mentions the holy city in verse two. Here in verse eight, it's where our Lord was crucified. But although there is in the text an immediate reference to Jerusalem, Jerusalem has now been given over to the nations. It's being trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Paul says in Galatians 4 that the Jerusalem that now is corresponds to Hagar and the Ishmaelites who are in bondage to their sin. So Jerusalem has been given over. Also, this great city, far now from representing the kingdom of God as it has in the past, now represents Babylon and the kingdoms of this world. It is spiritually here called Sodom and Egypt. These are references references to the fact that Jerusalem has been handed over to the nations. Jerusalem has been handed over to the kingdoms of this world. Now this term is used in Revelation in just that way, multiple times. In Revelation chapter 16, verse 19, listen, the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. So that term, again, that term great city comes up multiple times in the book of Revelation and now that great city, which here was once called Jerusalem, now spiritually called Sodom and Egypt is directly tied, directly linked by use of that term to Babylon. Revelation 16, the great city, verse 19 Um, a reference to Babylon. Revelation 17, verse 18. And the woman, that harlot, whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth, that great city, Babylon. In Revelation 18, verse nine, the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Right, that reference occurs over and over again in Revelation. Again, in verse 16, 18, verse 19, verse 21. That's why also this great city is referred to as Sodom, and as Egypt. It's a city from which the nations, verse 9, will see their dead bodies. He's not simply referring to non-Christian Jews in the physical city of Jerusalem. He's referring to the nations, viewing, as it were, their dead bodies. What's being communicated through the use of these terms? Jerusalem has become spiritually like Babylon. Jerusalem has become spiritually like Sodom, like Egypt. Jerusalem has become like the nations. It has become like those who have crucified the Lord of glory. Now in Revelation 11 verse 8, Jerusalem now takes its place in this ungodly world alongside other examples of rebellion against God. Other examples of rebellious cities who have... um, fomented idolatry, have fomented wickedness. Sodom, known for its abhorrent wickedness. Sodomy, a reference to that city, right? Egypt, known for its persecution of God's people, its continuous persecution of God's people. Babylon, known as the great harlot, drunk with the fornication of her idolatry. And again, John says that this city is referred to spiritually as Sodom in Egypt meaning that the terms are used symbolically. They point to what Jerusalem has become. What has Jerusalem become? Jerusalem has become a harboring 
place of all manner of wickedness and idolatry. Since that time, since that time, there have been many great cities that have followed this typological pattern. It's not only referring to Jerusalem. It's not only referring to Sodom or only referring to Babylon or Egypt. There have been many. This is a typological pattern. Another example of typology in this book. There have been many great cities that have followed this very same typological pattern. Rome. Rome would follow that pattern. Spiritually like Babylon. Spiritually like Sodom, like Egypt. So would London. So would Paris. So would New York. So would Orlando. Typologically, brothers and sisters, we live in Babylon. We live in Babylon. When Revelation begins to use this reference to, to Babylon, it's referring to the global collective kingdom of this earth. It's referring to the kingdoms of this world that have all come together, as it were, in united wickedness against the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in Babylon. We live in a place that is spiritually called Sodom, spiritually called Egypt. The city, the city is a symbol for any place where the seed of the serpent is doing the will of the beast to set themselves against the Lord Christ and against his people. That's what this city represents. That's what Babylon represents. That's what Egypt represents. That's what Sodom represents. It's a symbol for any place where the seed of the serpent is doing the will of the beast to set themselves against the Lord Jesus Christ and against his people. That pattern has been repeated throughout, throughout history. Uh, the the history of the church. Uh, Throughout that period of time, represented by the cycles from the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to his second coming, it's happened throughout the history of the church. Joel Beakey, in his commentary on Revelation, says this. He says, the leaders of the Soviet Union once predicted that they would stamp out Christianity. Mao Zedong, Chairman Mao, right, tried to do the same thing in China. There have been other times in history when the church has been left for dead in the streets of this world. Many times in history where the church has come under severe persecution and the saints of God are left for dead in the city streets and gloated over by the enemies of God. Many times. Over 200 years ago, Peaky mentions uh, an interesting example. Over 200 years ago, the French deist Voltaire scoffed at the Bible and hoped that he was living in the twilight of Christianity. Voltaire actually believed that within his lifetime, Christianity would come to an end. But a century later, a hundred years later, the very house where Voltaire once lived in Geneva was the home of the Evangelical Society of Geneva and being used as a storage site for Bibles. I find that fascinating. There are many examples like that, many examples like that in history. They believe that they've won a great victory and they gloat in their supposed victory and their house is being used as a storage place for Bibles. Beaky says, the world may write off the church, but God is constantly turning the tables upon this world. And there will come a point in time, brothers and sisters, at the end where the tables will be turned for good. And the Lord Jesus Christ will usher in a great victory, a consummated victory, will judge the world in righteousness and will usher his people into glory. All of that said, and all of that entirely true, the opposition that we face is severe, right? 
the opposition that we face is severe. There are dead bodies in the street. In Revelation 11, the Lord's witnesses are overcome. Lord's witnesses are killed. And as we know, this again, pressing us against the end of this age, pressing us against that point in time when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, against the sounding, the blast of the seventh trumpet, we know that at the end, the beast makes war against the saints. He overcomes them and he kills them and their dead bodies are left lying in the street. We know that there will come a point in time when persecution against God's people will be severe. We're going to face up, we're going to face ramping up persecution the closer and closer that we get to that ultimate historical climax, right? Things will grow worse and worse. Uh, These things increase as birth pains upon a pregnant woman. They increase in frequency and then they increase in severity and then the end will come. That's what's going to happen. Their bodies left to rot in the street, their enemies gloating over them. Now notice next, we're gonna see the, the end of the story though when we get to the next section of text, uh, beginning in verse 12. We're gonna see uh, what becomes of these. Right now though, I want you to uh, see next their wicked celebration in verse nine. And not, not simply, again, to make the point, this is not simply the celebration of unbelieving Jews in a literal Jerusalem, but people from all over this rebellious world. Verse nine, then those from Jerusalem, no, those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations, people from all over this world, will see their dead bodies. This is not a localized thing. This is a global thing, do you see? This is not a localized persecution. This is a global persecution. This is not the localized death of two individuals. This is the global death and persecution of God's witnesses all over the earth. Those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days interesting, and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. It's interesting, right? The duration of the Lord's witness during his earthly ministry was three and a half years, right? That was the length of his ministry on the earth. The duration of their witness, the witness of God's two witnesses, the witness of the church, is here, three and a half years. We know that time period to be symbolic. The first half, you could say, of Daniel's 70th week, times, times, and half a time, 1260 days. However, the Bible references that. It's a symbolic period of time to describe the witness of God's people, the witness of of the church. And you see how that corresponds to the Lord's witness, three and a half years upon the earth. And now, as we've also discussed before, these references, the three and a half years, They remind us of the first half of Daniel's 70th week, and you can find Daniel's 70th week in Daniel chapter nine. However, once the Lord's church is decimated by this great persecution, the beast having made war with them, overcoming them and killing them, right? That persecution that arises at the end of the age before the second coming of Jesus Christ, we now see a reference to their bodies lying in the street for three and a half days. And that's interesting. That contrast is important, okay? And here's one of the reasons that it's important. The victory of the Antichrist will be very short-lived. If you look at that period of time that comprises the first coming of Jesus Christ to his second, this this age in which we're in, so far that first half of Daniel's 70th week has lasted 2,000 years. It's a long period of time. Matthew 24, the Lord himself says that the persecution of those days will be cut short for the sake of the elect, if you remember that reference. And then here, that period of time where their dead bodies lie in the street, 
That period of severe persecution, that period at the very end of the age, is three and a half, not years, but three and a half days. The seeming victory of the beast will be extremely short-lived. How long was it before the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ was raised from the dead in victory? Three days, right? It's very short time. They gloated for a period of time, and then Jesus Christ was triumphantly raised from the dead. Now, Notice with me what happens immediately after the persecution of those days. Look at Revelation chapter 11, verse 11. Now, after the three and a half days, that brief momentary experience of victory on the part of the beast where all, his, all the seeds of the serpent are gloating over their death, after that brief time, after they've had their opportunity to gloat, After three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. Great fear fell on all those who saw them. They were raised from the dead. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. (laughs) I love that. Come up here. And they, God's witnesses, ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. God did it in the sight of their enemies. Those who were gloating over them just moments ago now see them raised from the dead and raised into heaven, right? In the same hour, verse 13, there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. It's interesting there how that rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven and how that may be a reference to Romans chapter 11, our study of Romans on Sunday morning, where God reaps the fullness of Israel and reaps the fullness of the Gentiles in that time period before the return of Jesus Christ, where God brings all of his elect, elect Jews and elect Gentiles into the kingdom. Could be that time. Interesting to look at that connection. Verse 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Verse 15, then, then, the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. What is that? That is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. The kingdoms of of our, uh, our Lord, our kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he established, he consummates the kingdom. Now the Lord himself have, has described these events, these same events on the Mount of Olives with his disciples in the Olivet Discourse from Matthew 24. Turn there with me to Matthew 24. I want you to see this, Matthew 24. And look there beginning at verse 15, Matthew 24, verse 15. Therefore, the Lord is answering his disciples' questions. The disciples had asked him a question on the Mount of Olives um, in verse uh, three. The disciples asked him, tell us, when will these things be? Right, when are these end times events going to take place? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Right, two questions. When will this great persecution be? Right, the destruction of the temple, not one stone laid upon another. This great persecution, this great tribulation that takes place. When will these things be? And secondly, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Two questions, okay? In Matthew 15, he begins to answer that second question about the sign of his coming. What is the sign of his coming? Verse 15. Therefore, 
when you see the abomination of desolation. Now, if we follow this out, there's a chronology here that immediately upon this great persecution, immediately upon this abomination of desolation, the Lord Jesus Christ returns. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Here's the sign, right? Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. What's being used there Uh, really beginning in verse 16, verse 17, is AD 70 language when Jerusalem was sacked by Romans and destroyed, not one stone left upon another. He's using AD 70 as typological of this great, great tribulation that will take place at the end of the age. Then when you see these things happening, what looks like AD 70, but in the future, and we know it's in the future because the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. We're, we're about to see that. But this great period of this intense tribulation at the end of the age, after the abomination of desolation, um, when there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no nor shall ever be again, days in which they must be shortened, or else no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. In other words, in comparison with the time period of the church's witness for Jesus Christ, the days in which the Antichrist presumes to enjoy this victory over the the church will be very short-lived. Days represented by three and a half days rather than three and a half years, right? A period that is signified in Daniel by his reference to the 70th and final week of redemptive history. Now, what does the Lord say about that very shortened period of time at the end of the age, just before the return of Jesus Christ. What does the Lord say? Verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. Stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the son of man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Did any of that happen in AD 70? No, it hasn't happened yet. Why? Because this is prophesying something that takes place at the end of the age when Jesus Christ comes back, right? Jesus Christ has not returned. Jesus Christ did not return in AD 70. These things are not talking about specifically AD 70. AD 70 is typological of these events that take place at the end of the age when Jesus Christ comes back. Does that make sense? Right, so these things take place, verse 31, and he will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. He'll say to them, in essence, come up here, right? (laughs) And they will ascend to heaven on the clouds. Uh, These things all tie together, don't they? As Revelation 11 explains, they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. There were loud voices in heaven saying, at the return of Jesus Christ, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, by God's grace, we know the end of the story, don't we? We know the end of the story. There's no need to fear. There's no need to doubt. There's no need to be discouraged. There's no need to um, uh, 
to worry, to be anxious about these things, we know the end of the story. And we are invincible until God is through with us. No need to fear. Nevertheless, nevertheless, for a brief time, for a brief time, the enemies of God will gloat. <laughs> they're going to have their day in the sun, their 15 minutes of fame, so to speak. They're gonna, they're gonna gloat for that short period of time. Verse 10, those who dwell on the earth, rejoice over them, make merry, send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. How do they torment them? They tormented them with the truth, <laughs> right? Preach the truth. Preach the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were tormented with that truth. Preach the love, the great love of God, that he would love the world so much that he sent his only begotten son into the world. Those who would believe upon him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Preach the love of God. And it was a torment, the aroma of death to those who dwell upon the earth. Now that term, those who dwell upon the earth, is a common reference in Revelation uh, to this world of unbelievers. I want you to see, right, there is no neutrality. There is no neutrality to their unbelief. You are either one who trusts alone in the person and work of Jesus Christ, or you are an unbelieving earth dweller who trusts in your father, the devil. One of the two. You're trusting in Jesus Christ or trusting in yourself, which is trusting in your father, the devil, right? In addition to referring to this world of unbelievers, the term earth dweller, is also used in the context of their idolatry. Unbelieving earth dwellers are idolaters. Look at chapter 13, Revelation 13, and look at verse five there. In verse five, this beast was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. It's a period of time we're familiar with now, isn't it? And uh, he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? We just talked about that in Revelation chapter 11. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. That's a reference to the idolatry of earth dwellers. Those whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And verse 12, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. They worship him. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who is wounded by the sword and live. Look forward to getting to that text with you. It's a fascinating text. Now, the same is true in chapters 14, chapter 17. Earth dwellers are not some neutral category of unbelief. Earth dwellers, by default, are idolaters who have entrusted themselves to the false gods of this world, particularly the God of this age, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, their father, the devil. Jesus Christ said that the world hated him because he testified of it that its deeds were evil. He preached that their idolatry would be met with judgment. His preaching is a torment to earth dwellers. That's what tormented them. They could not live for themselves. 
They could not live for their evil deeds and get away with it. His preaching of judgment was a, a message of torment to those who dwell upon the earth. When confronted with the preaching of the Lord's witnesses, preaching the very same message, these idolatrous earth dwellers respond with hatred. They persecute and kill God's heralds sent to them. Just as they persecuted and killed God's son. And they rejoiced over them, thinking that they had won some great victory. Thinking that they had been able to silence the sound of God's word in this world. They imagine themselves that the judgment won't come. They imagine that they have put an end to all that talk of judgment. These scoffers in the last days walk according to their own lust, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. And they willfully forget, they willfully forget the, the flood. That perceived silence will only provide them comfort and cover for a time. Three and a half days. A very short time, comparatively, right? The kingdoms of this world are ultimately the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. All that to say that God's people, we're to uh, patiently wait on him. While the enemies of God may be seen to prosper, while the enemies of God are seen to gloat, we are to patiently wait on him. We know the end of the story. And it's here in this thought, we see further comparisons to Psalm 79. And again, we see here as well, connections to Revelation chapter six, verse nine, where those martyred saints cry out from under the altar for the vengeance of God to fall upon those who have persecuted them, right? We, we see this connection to Psalm 79. We see this connection to the saints, the martyred saints under the altar in the, king, in the, in the, the temple of heaven for vengeance to fall. In Psalm 79, verse five, how long, Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? In other words, will you continue to hold back your great anger and let it burn? When will you pour it out? When, you will, when will you unleash it? How long, Lord? Verse six, pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. For they have devoured Jacob. They've laid waste his dwelling place. They have made war against him. They have overcome him. They have killed him. Oh, do not remember former iniquities against us, O Lord. Let your tender mercies come speedily to meet us, for we have been brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your great name. Deliver us, provide atonement for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Why should the nations gloat? Let there be known among the nations in our sight. Do you see that? Let it be done in our sight, Lord, for the glory of your name, for us to see the greatness of your name, for us to praise the majesty of your name, the majesty of your justice, the majesty of your great judgments. Let it be done in our sight, O God, the avenging blood of your servants, which has been shed. Let the groaning of the prisoner come before you according to the greatness of your power. Preserve those who are appointed to die and return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom their reproach which, which, with which they have reproached you, O Lord. So we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give you thanks forever. We will show forth your praise to all generations. Hmm. The Lord is, there is a time coming when the Lord will set all things right. There is a time coming when, when the great harlot, 
the kingdoms of this world will be cast down and the people of God at that time are heard singing hallelujah, praising God, praising the lamb for having done it uh, in their sight, executing his judgments for his great name. The time is coming when the Lord will set all things right. And all God's people said, amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you've revealed to us the end of the story. Uh, Thank you for this great victory that you have won. Thank you that you will triumph and that you always lead us in triumph. Thank you, Lord, that we are are a part of that great victory not because of what we have done, but because of what our Lord Jesus Christ has done, but because of his work, his substitution on our behalf. Thank you that we can be counted among this great host, this innumerable host that will sing praises to your name into the ages. Thank you, Lord, for this blessing. I pray that during this time of our wilderness wandering, that you would strengthen your people. Um, prepare us, Lord, for the persecution that is surely coming, uh, for the, the suffering the indignity that we face already as your people. Um, We rejoice, Lord, that we've been counted worthy to suffer shame for your name. Uh, We count ourselves blessed when they speak all manner of evil against us falsely for your name's sake. We um, extol you. We revel in your grace and mercy uh, when others um, speak evil of us. We thank you, Lord, for giving us that perspective, um, that understanding of truth, in the midst of their taunts, in the midst of their gloating. And we're grateful to know that that gloating is only short-lived. And your victory is at the doors. Your consummation is at the doors. We praise you and thank you for it. Strengthen us during this time. Encourage us with these symbols, these pictures, this, what is being communicated to us through these things. Help us to understand, help us to meditate on these things and to reap their fullness in our own hearts and minds as we live for you in this age. We are your witnesses in this age. Help us to be faithful witnesses, faithful heralds uh, for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, for the sake of uh, his gospel, for the sake of your glory. For all these things in his name. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.